You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. All right, well, you can have a seat. And uh, it's, it's fitting that, uh, you know, talking about spiritual warfare, the PA dies right before I'm about to go on. So I can talk loudly, that's fine. And I think you can listen well. So let's pray and let's uh, ask God to teach us as we go to his word today. God, you instruct us in your word to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And God, I pray that as I teach this morning, you would remind us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our enemies are not human, but Lord, we wage war against spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. And and Spirit, would you give us eyes to see the battle we're in and resist the devil? I pray against him in the name of Jesus this morning, against his servants, their works and their effects, Lord. And God, would you remove any confusion or distraction from us now in the name of Jesus and make us attentive to what you have to teach us today. And Jesus, we ask it in your matchless name, the name above all names. Amen. In today's passage, Paul offers a fairly chilling warning. He says this, I do not want you, Corinthians, to be participants with demons. Paul is speaking to believers in Jesus Christ, and he says it is possible for a genuine believer in Jesus Christ to enter into a kind of fellowship with evil demonic spirits that gives them a place in your life to exert power and influence. Do you know that you have an enemy, a spiritual enemy? He's smarter than you. He's stronger than you. He hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. And apart from Jesus, you are powerless against him. Do you know that? It's what the Bible teaches. Here's the question for this morning. How do you know his attacks? How can you discern a demonic attack? Because the reality is this, until you have identified the enemy, can you defend yourself? No. During the Persian Gulf War, Lieutenant Commander Michael Riley was manning a radar station on the USS Missouri. And as he looked at this radar station, he saw a blip appear on the screen, and the blip was headed right for the ship. Now, when he saw it, there were two options of what it could be. It could have been an Allied plane, a coalition UA-6 aircraft. On the other hand, it could be a silkworm missile, either an Allied plane or an enemy missile. Get the picture? And there were no objective criteria to determine which one it was. They looked identical. So you're Riley in that situation. What do you do? If you don't shoot, your shipmates might all be dead. If you do shoot, you might kill 
a fellow brother in arms. He was tortured by this decision. Finally, just on his gut, he said, shoot it, it's a missile. And they did, and it was a missile. As it turned out, he was right. The ship was saved. And afterwards, Riley spent hours with a cognitive psychologist, and they assessed what had happened. And what they concluded together was that Riley had a subliminal recognition that that blip was a missile. It had entered his screen at a slightly different interval from the planes he was used to tracking, and he knew it. Now, why do you think he had that intuition? Because he spent a lot of time looking at radar screens. Not everything in your life is a satanic attack. Lots of things are. So how do you tell what's spiritually harmless and what's demonic and deadly? What do demonic attacks look like? You know, the sobering reality is this. Uh, the devil never tells you he's the devil, right? When there's spiritual attack in your life, Satan isn't going to jump out behind a bush. Rawr, I'm the devil. I'm going to kill you. No, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. He is smart. So we have to train our powers of discernment. That's what today is about. Two things. First, discerning spiritual danger. Second, experiencing Christ's deliverance. We're going to spend most of the time on that first point because we need to train our powers of discernment. How does Satan operate? How does he gain entry to our lives? How do we detect him? Here's the sobering reality for the Corinthians. They were dabbling in demonic activity and they had no idea they were doing it. And so Paul has to make this clear to him, them. And the way he makes it clear, I think, is instructive for us as we think about Satan's schemes in our lives. Verse 14, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, he loves these people, flee from idolatry. <laughs> I love this. At the beginning of chapter 8, Paul posed a question, and it's one that the Corinthians asked. The Corinthians were asking Paul, is it okay for us to meet, eat meat sacrificed to idols? Remember that question? And now, finally, two and a half chapters later, Paul answers the question. Now, to make sense of Paul's response, you need to keep in mind the issue he's addressing. He isn't just concerned about what the Corinthians are eating, but where they were eating it. Remember, they're not just eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. Where are they eating it? In the temple, during idolatrous worship services. So as one scholar has said, Paul's concern here isn't primarily with the menu, it's with the venue. Okay, not the menu, but the venue, because here is the problem. They're going into the temple precincts to eat this, which means they're participating in idol worship. They don't believe in idols, but they're sitting there for the worship service and the prayers to the God and the invitation for the God to come and be present at the feast and all of the vows to the God, and they're just eating the meal like this is no big deal to be a part of this whole ceremony. To make matters worse, the Corinthians think they're entitled to this sort of behavior. And so Paul goes to great pains to correct their thinking. First, chapter 8, he says, this behavior is hurting other people. Corinthians, do you realize people who are new to the faith see you doing this, and then they're tempted to go back into idol worship, and they're actually getting right back led into idol worship and rejecting Christ altogether. 
So that's one. Do you see how this behavior is affecting other people? And then second, he says, you know, Corinthians, you think you have the right to do this, which you don't, but, you know, that betrays this bad view of rights. You think you're entitled to this kind of behavior. But, but see, Christians, when we think about rights, we don't start with the question, what, do I, what am I entitled to, but what would benefit other people? And, and so your whole view of rights is skewed as well, and that's all of chapter 9, right? So he says, it's hurting other people, you have a skewed view of rights and what you're entitled to, And then chapter 10, he gives this cautionary tale from Israel that we looked at last week. He says, not only are you entitled, you have this presumption spiritually. You think that because God has done all these amazing things in your church, that you're secure in Him, that your standing is secure, and yet you're flirting with idolatry and you're sinning. And you know who you look like right now? Israel in the wilderness. And things ended bad for them because they were presumptuous. Avoid that And now finally, after making all of his points about all the underlying points, Paul answers the question, is it okay? No, of course not. (laughs) Flee. Don't get close to false worship. Don't play with fire. Paul says, Corinthians, you should know this. I love it. I speak as to sensible people. There's a bit of humor there because the Corinthians aren't sensible but they think they're sensible, right? They're always proclaiming their knowledge and their heightened spiritual awareness. And he says, okay, Corinthians, clearly, if you're so heightened in your spiritual awareness, you would know this is a terrible idea. Don't get close to idols. Here's what's so interesting about the the, the Corinthians. They did not think idol worship was a big deal because idols weren't real, right? That's their reasoning. Idols don't have any existence in themselves, So I'm not going to the temple to worship idols. I'm going because the temple of Apollo has an amazing brunch special, right? And who wouldn't take advantage of that? That's why I'm going. Paul, what is the big deal? And Paul says, here's where the passage is going, that doing this is opening the door to demonic activity in your life. And you should know that. So so think about what's happening here. You have people who are in a spiritually dangerous situation who have no idea they're in a spiritually dangerous situation, which makes it way more spiritually dangerous, right? So now Paul's going to make his argument. Why is this spiritually dangerous? Here's Paul, argument number one. He says this. First, you already understand the spiritual significance of meals. Here's Paul's first appeal to them, and it's from the Lord's Supper or Communion. He says, you know, Corinthians, you have a spiritual meal that you take during church. Do you think that's just a meal? (laughs) Or is it maybe more than just a meal? What does Paul say? Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Now, Paul is talking about communion, which we just celebrated. What's his point? Well, it all depends on how you understand that word, participation. The Greek word will probably sound familiar to a lot of you. It's koinonia, from which we get fellowship or intimate participation. That's the idea. It appears four times in this passage. Paul says communion is a participation in the blood of Christ. What does Paul mean? Well, what kind of participation is this? Is is Paul saying that we literally eat or drink the, the blood of Christ or that it's somehow present in what we're drinking? I don't think so, because remember the the context. 
This is not a passage about the Lord's Supper. It's not. It's a passage about eating idol worship meals and why they're dangerous, right? So this is being introduced to set up a contrast or a comparison. Does that make sense? So Paul talks about participation in communion. Later, he will talk about a kind of spiritual participation in idol meals. So you see the analogy? There's a kind of participation that's happening in each one, and it has to be the same kind of participation or the comparison doesn't work. So what kind of participation happens when we take communion? How are we participating in the blood of Christ? I think what Paul is saying is this, communion, taking the cup, this is how we express our participation in the covenant that Christ gives us by his death. When we take communion, we are expressing our relationship, our participation in the covenant that Christ has given us, and we participate in his blood. That means the only reason we have this new covenant relationship with Jesus is what? Because of his blood, his death. Remember how Jesus puts it when he institutes communion? Back in Matthew 26, the the first ever communion, Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover meal. Jews celebrated it every year, and now Jesus fills it with new meaning. He takes the cup of blessing, probably the final cup of the meal. He blesses God, and then he says, drink of it, all of you, for this is what? The blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What is Jesus saying in that moment? That I am the ultimate Passover lamb? That my blood will accomplish the ultimate deliverance of God's people And he says, take this cup because this is how you express your participation in what I'm going to accomplish. Does that make sense? That's what communion is. The cup represents the blood. The blood represents Jesus' death. Jesus' death is what gives us the covenant. Jesus' death is what removes our sins, brings us near to God. And every time we take communion as a people, what we are saying is Jesus The only reason we are in this relationship is because of your blood. It's based on your blood. We are expressing participation. You know what else we're doing? We're renewing our covenant with Jesus. We're saying, Jesus, you died so we might live, and we live for who? For you. This is our covenant allegiance to the Lord. That's what we're expressing in communion. Okay, that's not just a meal, is it? That's like saying a wedding is just a ceremony. The the symbolic actions mean something. Every time we take communion, it's if Christ, the Lord of the table, the host is coming, drawing near to his people to confirm and nourish our faith. And we, in response, are saying, we are going to live for you. And notice, it's not just me saying that during communion, it's we saying it, which is Paul's next point. Communion doesn't just have vertical significance, it's just not just about me and Jesus. It has horizontal significance. It's about we in Jesus, which is why Paul goes on to say this. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, what body is Paul talking about here? It's not just the, the literal body of Christ, but the spiritual body of Christ on earth who is who? That's all of us, the church. And and so when we take communion, we're not just declaring we have a new relationship with Jesus. We're declaring we have a new relationship with who? 
each other. It's an act of solidarity to take communion. We all are in this together. Jesus died. In fact, isn't it amazing just the fact that we all celebrated together as one body at the same time in itself declares this is what Jesus died to accomplish, to bring us all together as a unified body. Subtext, that's why there shouldn't be divisions in the body because Jesus died to bring us together so there can't be division. Hold that thought. Paul will go back to it in 1 Corinthians 11. So, the Corinthians say, Paul, it's not I shall worship, it's just brunch. What does Paul say? Is communion just brunch? See, communion is symbolic, but that doesn't mean it's just symbolic, right? Like when you invite people to your wedding, are you just playing dress up? Like, oh, I just like putting a ring on finger and saying vows and doing all this. It's just a wedding. No, like that is how you are entering the covenant. The acts, the meaning, the internal significance is all tied together. That's communion as well. So, Corinthians, you already know that a meal isn't just a meal, that meals can be spiritually significant. It shouldn't be taken lightly. That's Paul's first argument. Here's the second argument, and it returns to a point he has already made in this chapter. You already understand the significance of meals. You already understand what Israel did in the wilderness too, and that meal. He says, verse 18, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. Paul now draws an analogy from Israel's history. Now, it might be that Paul is thinking of Israel's sacrificial system with the temple and the sacrifices and all of that. I don't think so. Because in this chapter, he's using not just Israel, but Israel in the wilderness as the point of comparison, right? And so the most likely meaning here, the most likely referent is Paul is still talking about what Israel did in the wilderness. Did they make sacrifices in the wilderness? Yes. Remember Exodus 32? We talked about it last week. Moses goes up on the hill to get the Ten Commandments. Dad leaves. The kids go nuts, right? They're all panicked. We don't like big, scary God up on the hill. We want a God who's a little more manageable. Let's make a calf. They start eating and drinking to the calf. They start making sacrifices to the calf. Moses comes down. Remember, he's like, Aaron, what happened? He's like, I don't know. I just, people gave me gold. And I threw it. Now it popped the calf. Like, I'm not involved in this, right? And Moses is like, what are you talking about? And the people are like, no, 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 no. We just made a mistake. And Moses is like, no, this is not just a mistake. In fact, all of you who ate and drank, regardless of what you were thinking, everyone who ate and drank, do you know what you did? You just broke covenant with God. This is incredibly serious, that eating and drinking, making sacrifices to a false god, participating in this spiritual meal, that was an act of spiritual adultery. It was a way, participating in the altar, that means you are now our God, we are now pledging our covenant loyalty to who? To you. Breaking faith. Was that serious in Israel's history? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so serious that God says, you have broken faith in the covenant. You're a faithless people. I'm going to leave you. And it takes Moses' intercession, right, to, to, to um, basically preserve the covenant, which is obviously a picture of Jesus and what he does to, as a go-between in our covenant with God. So all that to say, Corinthians, you already know how significant meals are. But see, the Corinthians might still have an objection. They could say, look, Paul, we are not idolaters. 
Israel actually believed in the calf. We don't believe in Apollo or any of these false gods. We just like brunch. And now Paul gets to the big point here. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Corinthians, I'm not saying that idols actually exist or that, that these meals have these inherent spiritual properties because the gods are real. No, I imply what? That what pagan sacrifice, here's the key, they offer to who? Demons. And not to God, I do not want you to be participants, koinonoinus, <laughs> partakers, fellows with what? Demons. Okay, now this is getting scary, right? And this is the heart of Paul's concern. See, Paul agrees with the Corinthians. Yeah, idols have no existence in themselves. Fine. But, but Paul's concern is this, and it's a concern throughout the Bible that, the, that idol worship is always a portal to what? Satan and demonic activity. Always. And so the Corinthians are playing with fire whether they realize it or not. See, why does Paul view idolatry this way? Well, it's interesting, Moses describes Israel's idolatry this way in Deuteronomy 32. Remember at the very end of Deuteronomy, Moses is kind of recapping everything God did, and he talks about Israel's sin in the wilderness and worshiping the golden calf, and what does Moses say happened there? He says in his song in Deuteronomy 32, they, the Israelites, stirred God to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to who? Demons that were no gods. Paul is just picking up on what Moses already said, that, that to engage at any level in false worship is to get proximate to the demonic realm flirting with this is feigning a kind of allegiance to the demonic realm. And here's the bigger point. Satan always works through false religion. Anything spiritual outside of God's revealed will, even if it has no inherent power, Satan is more than happy to give it power and animate it with power if he can hold people captive with it. Corinthians, don't get close to that. And that's Paul's conclusion. Don't dabble in the demonic. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. These are mutually exclusive. That's the point. Why? Because each is a covenant meal. There's a covenant meal to God where we express soul allegiance to Him. There's covenant meals to demons that express allegiance to them. You only have one master. You can't serve two masters. You only have one husband. You can't be married to two husbands. This is an act of covenant loyalty. You can't have it both ways. And when you try to, you provoke the Lord to what? Anger and jealousy. Why, why jealousy? What is God's jealousy? Well, it's His zeal to protect what rightfully belongs to Him. And what rightfully belongs to Him in the covenant is our exclusive allegiance. He has an exclusive allegiance to us. He expects it in return. When we don't give that allegiance, He is angry and He is jealous for our affection. And He will go try to get it back and win us back. Okay? Paul's raising the stakes here, isn't he? It's not just brunch. Corinthians. This is a no-go zone. Don't provoke the Lord. Don't think you're stronger than Him. Don't flirt with this. 
Now, what is the spiritual implication of all of this? That it's possible as a Christian to get proximate to demonic activity, to, def- to flirt with it, and think it's fine and it's harmless. So here's the implication for us. Do I view Satan and demonic forces as a clear and present, we could say, ever-present danger for my spiritual life? Do you see reality that way? The Bible says there's three enemies, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh is our inner compulsion to sin. The world is not people exactly, but it's worldviews, ideas that get propagated. And then the third is the devil. Um, I would say in the Western world, we get the world, we get the flesh, but in the West, there is not much emphasis on the devil at all. At all. We don't see the devil as the primary threat, and the reason for that is unlike the rest of the world, we just don't take the spiritual realm very seriously. We're scientific, we're enlightened, we're rational, and so even as Christians, we can sort of buy into this idea that all that stuff about Satan and demons, boy, it was really around in Jesus' time, and then it all kind of quieted down during the church age. Um, Satan would love nothing more than for us to think that way. That is how our culture views demonic activity. I remember years ago, Dateline did a show on Satan and demonic activity. And I was really excited because, you know, you always want the media to represent your position well. And and they were going to represent it well because my friend Clint was going to be on the show. And, And my friend Clint is a genius. He is the world expert on the background of Ephesians and Colossians. He's studied demonic activity in the New Testament more than anyone I know. He's done interdisciplinary studies with anthropologists and psychiatrists and psychologists on demonic activity and how to discern it. I mean, this is, guys, this is the guy on our team we want on this show, okay? And I'm like, yes, it's going to be good. This is going to be compelling. And, and it was great what they did because they gave, you know, to their credit, they gave him an interview. It was highly condensed, highly edited. And they said, Clint, do you believe really in the existence of Satan and demons? And he said, yes. Next shot. (laughs) Away from him. And the the next shot they they, they aired was a church in Kentucky where people were getting bit by snakes. And, And you know about the snake handling churches, right? There's like 17 people in Kentucky and West Virginia who believe this. Uh, like about 17 who think that because we have authority over, cry, over Satan, uh, we can handle snakes and not get bit. And the main way you express spiritual authority is by getting bit by snakes, right? That's like 17 people in the country, right? That was what they should think. Now, Clint, snake stompers, right? Just Clint. And, and just the, the overwhelming impression you got is that these are the same kind of people, right? And that Christians are just kind of crazy to think there is reality like Satan and demons. To the degree that we are embarrassed or ashamed by this is the degree we give Satan a foothold to operate in the world. Satan would love nothing more than for people to deny his existence because it just gives him a bigger base of operations. So that's one reason we don't take this seriously. Here's the second reason is sort of this bad theology that says, because I'm secure in Christ, I'm immune from demonic attack. Right? First John says, the devil can't touch me. That's true. He can't snatch you out of Christ's hand. 
But boy, you read the New Testament and apparently Satan can influence you, tempt you, lie to you, cause sickness, divert your travel plans. He can invade your life, exert powerful influence over you, lie to you, suggest things to you, drive you to the brink of despair. I mean, these are just things that are commonplace in the New Testament for Satan to do. Why? Because he's the actual enemy. He is the enemy, and, and, and listen, this idea that because I'm secure in Christ, I have this kind of um, immune system where Satan can't exert influence over me, Satan would love nothing more for you to believe that too. There are all sorts of ways Satan can gain a foothold, and you say, okay, Jeff, well, what are they? What does demonization look like? By the way, you know, we say, well, I can't be possessed by a demon, Right? Well, first of all, the term possessed by a demon never actually occurs in the New Testament. The term is demonized. People are demonized in the New Testament. That's the word, which just means under the influence of of demons. Well, I can't be possessed. Well, no, you're the Spirit's possession. Christ possesses you. The devil can't possess you. Can you be influenced by demons? Well, let's just look at what the Bible says to warn against to see if you can be under demonic influence as a Christian. Five ways, five open doors that Satan will use, okay? This is not comprehensive, just expressing some ways that Satan works. The first is occult and new age practices. Let's begin with the most obvious. If you dabble with spiritual things that are outside God's revealed will, you're dabbling in the demonic, okay? Any kind of astrology, palm reading, fortune telling, Ouija boards, tarot cards, witchcraft, sorcery, magic, not like sleight of hand magic, but actual scary trying to affect spiritual forces magic, table lifting, anything that is imbued with spiritual power. You know what? Satan is more than happy to use that and fill it with actual spiritual power to keep people under bondage. When objects, one writer says, are made for occult purposes and when people look to an object with the anticipation that it has power, Demons will meet that expectation, quite apart from any qualities inherent in the object itself. Anything you imbue with religious power, demons are more than happy to inhabit. There's witchcraft, and then there's just a lot of New Age teaching, which I just call Instagram witchcraft, okay? Because you look at so many influencers today, and they say, no, we're not spiritual, but they talk about like vibes and energy and manifesting your future through affirmations and all of this stuff. It's, it's just really well-polished demonic teaching, okay? That's, that's what so much of it is. And the degree to which we believe that there is some like life hack spirituality that gets us our dream and has nothing to do with God's revealed word, demons are more than happy to use that too to keep you in bondage, okay? So you got witchcraft, you got Instagram witchcraft, you've got false teaching, and that's probably the primary way, according to the New Testament, that Satan gains a foothold is just through the ideology of the world. See, the world doesn't need to know that Satan's pulling the strings, and yet Satan can pull the strings on lots of ideologies and ideas, and can lure us astray. I mean, if you think the book of Revelation is about the church age, and I think it is in large part, you'll see that perhaps the primary thing that Satan is doing in this age is giving us ideas in the world that are anti-God and anti-Christ. 
And now the internet just makes that ubiquitous. We are bombarded all the time. And, and here's what's so insidious about this, right? False teaching is subtle. It's not just the content of what people say. It can be the arts. It can be the way the good and the true and the beautiful are presented and just the things that grab our affections. I remember years ago, someone gave us tickets to a play and the play was The Prince of Egypt. And I thought The Prince of Egypt was a great movie, right? The, the telling of the Exodus and there can be miracle, right? That, that, I, I love that movie, right? And so I'm like, oh, great. I'm going to take my kids to this. It's going to be great. And it was horrible, horrible. They recrafted the movie script, they recrafted the biblical narrative, and at the end, like the crescendo of the thing, they took all this beautiful music and art, and the crescendo was God was basically the villain of the story. And Moses and Pharaoh basically bumped fists at the end, saying, yep, we agree. Man, how could God be so mean? And I'm like, doctrine of demons, like I almost said it out loud. Like I was just so enraged and I'm like, thank God my kids had fallen asleep at this point. They were so bored. That was good. Just picked them up, left the show, right? Now, there are all sorts of ways the world can get you to love things and agree to things by bypassing your intellect and going for what? Your affections. I remember my dad telling me this years ago, and it's always stuck with me. It is impossible to evaluate something and be entertained by something at the same time. It's impossible because the minute you're enjoying it and being entertained by it, you are turning off your powers of discernment. And so anytime you're going to be entertained by something, enjoying something, just beware. That, that's a place where you can let your guard down and Satan will get your affections through those things. Okay, false teaching. A next one, this is not comprehensive, okay? You're going to give me a but what about at the end of this. I know, I know, there's more. Persistent sexual immorality. Why do I bring that one? Because one of the things that false teachers teach in the New Testament is sexual immorality. It's almost always the thing they go after is sexual immorality. Why? Because sex, this picture of covenantal union with God, what does Satan want to distort more than anything? A picture of covenantal union with God. And so if he can skew that, if he can pervert that in his mind and get you to go along with it, it's a way to drive a wedge between you and God. And that's why persistent sexual immorality, I mean, do a comparison of what Paul says about sexual morality in 1 Corinthians and idolatry. Flee sexual morality. Flee idolatry. Join to a prostitute. Joined participating with an idol. There's all of these connections. Why? Because this is something that Satan will go after to keep you in bondage. Next one would be lying and inner vows. Satan is the father of what? Lies. <laughs> so if you perpetuate a lie, you are going into Satan's territory in his playbook. And if you live in a lie, you are ceding more and more authority and power to his life, whatever that lie is. Whatever lie you're living in, whatever one. And what goes along with this, I would say, is something like an inner vow. What is that? It's a, fault, it's a promise that's evil that you make to yourself. It's a kind of lie. What does an inner vow look like? Something like, I will never trust people again. I will always hate that person. I will always think this way because... It's a lie, but it's a vow you make to yourself. That is a foothold for Satan. 
right? He will play on that thing if you make it to yourself. I had to confront a few today. I was thinking this morning about a person where I thought, I will never have a normal relationship with that person. I will always hold them at a distance. Always. I'm like, always? What if they become a believer? Then you're always going to have a wonderful relationship with them, Jeff. And and I realized I, I had built up this whole narrative around that person. What is that? That's the enemy. That's the enemy working. Okay, biggest one, I would say, according to the New Testament, is unresolved anger. Biggest one. In fact, almost every counselor would say that this is the ground that Satan gains a Christian a foothold in more than anyone else. Why? Because what does Paul say in Ephesians 4? Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not give the devil what? An opportunity. The word opportunity, do you know what it literally is? Space. Place. Do not give the devil an inhabited place in your heart. If you cultivate a bitter, unforgiving heart, you are just giving up that part of your heart to Satan. That's the beachhead that Satan wants to use as his ground of operation. This is why forgiveness is such a spiritually serious thing. It's not because the person deserves it. It's because Satan will control your life in this area until you forgive. You won't experience Christ's forgiveness experientially until you forgive in that area. So, So as you can see, There are all kinds of ways for us to seed authority and ideas to Satan. And here's why that is so important to understand, especially in the Western world. Sin can make you sad. Persistent sin, grieving the Spirit, can make you sad and feel dark, right? Your body not working properly and trauma in your life can make things feel dark. We live in a broken world. Our bodies don't always work right or fire exactly the way. That can make you sad. Here's the one I almost never hear people talking about. The devil can oppress you with darkness and we need to be delivered. And if life feels just unremittingly dark... School shootings, catastrophes, all these things, we can't just punt that up to, well, there's problems in society. No, there is a present age of spiritual darkness, and it just sits on the world. And if we cede to it, it can overtake us and keep us in bondage as well. So, how do we experience deliverance? Real quick, then we're done. Again, not exhaustive. I believe in casting out demons. I believe in deliverance ministry. I believe in all that. That's the most dramatic form of demonization, right? Often the demonization we experience are the ways that demons gain a foothold in our lives. The day-to-day things here are the practices we need to cultivate, okay? Think about it this way. Satan is a liar, a tempter, and an accuser, right? Those are his tactics. Liar, tempter, accuser. You have to confront Satan with what? Truth? repentance and the assurance of the gospel. Truth, repentance, assurance of the gospel, right? First, if Satan is a liar, the antidote is walking in the light. Confess sin to God. Write down your sins so that God and you agree on what they are. Confess those to other believers. Why? Failure to confess sin is living in darkness. Whose domain is darkness? Satan's. So the degree to which I'm not confessing to God and other people is the degree to which I'm just living in enemy territory and not experiencing his redemptive power in my life. 
Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. His kingdom thrives on darkness. Walk in the light. Next, he's a tempter. So you need to make a radical separation from evil in your life. That's next point. James says, resist the devil. Resist the devil. Make a break. If you have an ungodly tie in your life, if there is entertainment leading you into sin, there is something, do something drastic to sever your relationship with that thing. If there's a physical object in your house that you have imbued with spiritual power, that's bad, okay? Real practically, go burn that thing, seriously. <laughs> go get rid of that. Any claim, any ground of entry that the devil might have on you, separate from it. Repent. Goes along with confession. And the next one is declare Christ's victory and your share in it. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, of brothers and sisters. Satan manipulates the truth of God's law against us to say, you know you're a failure and you know you're doomed. You're doomed. You'll never get better. You're a disappointment. You're worthless. You should die. That is the voice of the enemy. That is not the voice of the Spirit of God. And the way to disarm that, I think, is, and I would do it with other believers too, you have to verbally declare, and I would say verbally, out loud, confess with your mouth the victory that Jesus won at the cross. That is how you resist the devil. God wants your active participation in this fight, right? You are waging war. It's not just, oh, God, deliver me from this. We don't just pray, God, deliver me from sin. We say to sin, what? No. That's Romans 6, right? No. And I think it's important to declare out loud, Jesus, I belong to you. You have claimed me for yourself. I am forgiven in Christ. I am secure in Christ. God's plans for me are good in Christ. Demonic realm, you have no claim on me. Satan, you have no claim on me. I resist you. Are you comfortable talking with that way? If you're not, it might be you just don't understand how real a threat this is and the way to fight back. Declare Christ's victory. Have other people declare Christ's victory on you. Declare your allegiance out loud to Jesus. Declare to the spiritual realm that I belong to him and none others, and he has all power over every throne and authority. The, the main thing that I think Satan will use to enslave people is shame. That's it. It's this sense of failure and condemnation and, and, and not just that I did wrong, but I am wrong. And things are hopeless. And, and what we have to go back to is a truth that, that Paul says in Colossians 2, and it's this, that when Jesus canceled the record of debt on the cross, is what he did, there was a record of debt against us. That was God's record of debt. When Jesus dies, he takes that record of debt, he smashes it on the ground. He says, paid in full, written off, done. And do you know what Paul says Jesus did right then? He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. 
their claim on you was based on the law and your guilt before God, Jesus has canceled it so they are disarmed. So when Satan brings up your past, bring up what already happened to you in Jesus. And as one rapper said, tell him about his future too. That is the truth, and that's the truth for anyone today who is suffering under darkness and bondage. I'm here to tell you it's not just because you're screwing up. It's not just because life is hard. It's because you have a powerful spiritual enemy. And if you don't know Jesus, the only way to ever get up out of that darkness is to believe this. Because only Jesus can transfer you from the kingdom of darkness that you're currently living in to the kingdom of light. That's the invitation of the gospel, is that you get to have a new kingdom and a new king. And if you are just tired of living in the darkness, there's a way out. But you can't get out. Only he can get you out. And so let's pray. And so, Jesus, I thank you for breaking the power of sin decisively. Uh, your word says you came to destroy the works of the devil. And so, Lord, would we walk in that? Would we confess? Would we resist Jesus? And Lord, anyone who doesn't know you, I pray they would see that you died to cancel the record of their debt to bring them out of darkness into light. Would they trust you? Would they walk in it today? And I ask it in your name. Amen.